Well, like Luke said, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a day where we commemorate a misunderstanding. Palm Sunday is when we focus our attention on a time when two different people had two very different expectations and they crossed. Palm Sunday is a day on the church calendar where millions of people around the world are focusing their attention on Jesus' ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And his ride into Jerusalem represents a colossal misunderstanding. We thought he was here for one reason. He said he's here for another misunderstanding. But we're celebrating Palm Sunday because it's a misunderstanding that worked in our favor. What makes it difficult to believe that God wants connection with us? What makes it difficult to believe that God wants connection with us? Wants connection. Not is obligating, like, okay, let's do this whole relationship thing. You know, it'll make a good t-shirt one day. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. So I guess I'll connect with you. Now, what, what makes it hard for us to believe that God wants to, desires, is eager to connect with us? Some of that can be our own experience. Our own experience can tell us that the God of the Bible feels distant and distracted. You don't have to be alive very long to feel like God can feel distant and distracted. Distant. God, I have cancer. Where are you? God, my marriage is a mess. I'm trying to do everything right. Where are you? Distant. Or distracted. Well, yeah, I have cancer, but gosh, there's people going through way worse things, right? There's bigger things that God needs to give his attention to than little old me, right? You know, I mean, yeah, my marriage might be a mess, but there's a war in Ukraine. There's a coup in Myanmar, right? What? God's got to be distracted with those things. Our experience tells us that God feels distant and distracted. But Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday has another message. Palm Sunday says, not what our experience tells us. Palm Sunday says, are we open to another perspective? See, I want us, as we read the biographers, the gospel writers' account of that first Palm Sunday, I want us to be very gentle with the crowds. It would be very easy to be like, those people, they wanted Jesus as a political savior, but he was coming to be their savior, savior. Jeez, why did they miss that? Those are people, real people with stories, expectations. Real people being oppressed, suffering tremendously. 
The anti-Semitism of the first century matches and rivals the anti-Semitism of World War II. I mean, the oppression that the people of Israel were under was insurmountable. And we, we, we do a disservice to minimize that. You know, when I read my news feeds, I can, I can my prayer life has not been as amazing as it has been as the, the news of this past year, right? Just even think of this past week. Unspeakable tragedy in Nashville. I don't even want to talk about it, right? I read that and I just, oh, right? I, I, I open up my news feed and I read about China and Taiwan. You know, I open my news feed and there's a reporter from the Wall Street Journal kidnapped, accused of espionage in Russia. And I'm like, whoa. And these things bubble up in me. And I'm not saying today that when I bring those things to God, God, here's some concerns. He's like, I'm not worried about that. I just want relationship. Let's not do that to the original crowds. Like, that's not how God's... He's not distracted. He cares deeply about their needs. But the first crowd at Palm Sunday learned that sometimes the best thing God can do for us is not to answer our prayers the way we asked him to. While the people may have missed what he was trying to do, he did not miss the people and what they needed. And the message of Palm Sunday is not that God is distracted or that he's distant. The message of Palm Sunday is that God is dying for connection. God is dying for connection. And to quote Parks and Rec, literally. God is not distant. He's not distracted. He doesn't minimize our needs. He sees our needs and he moves toward us in our moment of need. And then he goes deeper. See, we know from the Apocrypha, which is a historical record of what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not scripture. It's historically reliable. We know from the Apocrypha that this isn't the first time somebody has rode into Jerusalem and we waved palm branches at them and we said, Hosanna, and they went in and they cleansed the temple. This is not the first time this happened. There was a guy called Jacob Maccabee. He did this. He said, let's take on our enemies. His name means the hammer. We're being oppressed. We're being pushed against. Let's push back. Jesus comes, and that's the crowd's expectation. There's another hammer. There's a new Messiah. He's, this is great. John, in his gospel, his biography, he tells us that the crowds were really excited because this hammer had a superpower. He could raise the dead. That's fantastic if you have an army. We're like the Avengers. We're like Wolverine, right? Rome's huge. Doesn't matter. We can die. Our Messiah can raise people from the dead. Woo, watch out. We're bad news bears. Jesus sees those needs, does not minimize those needs, but does not meet those needs the way they expected him to. Jesus does not come and say, I'm here for your self-preservation. He comes and says, I'm actually here to do something else. I'm here for connection, to meet your real needs. Then let's talk Rome. Jesus is not minimizing those moments when we're alone, 
when, we, when life is just scary, when our suffering is real, he's not minimizing those, but he's up to something else. Oh, that takes faith, right? When we're in crisis, all we can see is the trouble. And we're like, God, are you going to do something about my trouble? And on Palm Sunday, God says, I'm not going to relate to you from a fear-based way. I'm not going to come in and just, ah, you're afraid of this? Me too. I'm going to actually back the truck up and meet some real needs here. And the question is, will we trust God to do that for us? What makes it hard to believe that God wants connection with us? Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We are going to be starting in verse chapter 12. John 12, verse 12. Just like you and I have an address, the verses of the Bible have addresses. So John, that's the street. 12, that's the number. 12, that's the house. I don't know, it broke down fast. John 12, 12, that's where we're going to be. All right? John 12, 12. And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word. John 12, 12. It's Palm Sunday. Here we go. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, Hosanna! It just means praise God. Praise God. Why are we praising God? Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid. People of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, John loves reporting when people say things that has more truth than they're aware of. So the religious leaders had made a deal with Rome, and they had some kind of peace. And they were trying to stop Jesus because Jesus was threatening that peace, okay? That's called being like a benevolent, protect, or a benevolent predator, right? They're, they're not caring about the people's actual needs. They're just like, we have a good thing going. Don't mess with that, Jesus. So what do they say to each other? There's nothing we can do. John's like, uh-huh. Look, everybody, literally the whole world has gone after him. Verse 20, some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, sir, uh, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. I tell you the truth. When Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's good to listen, okay? I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. 
Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for this life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. <sighs> now my soul is, is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to them. Then Jesus said to them, uh, The voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. The crowd responded, uh, We understood from Scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say the Son of Man will die? Just who is the Son of Man anyway? Jesus replied, My light will shine for just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can, so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they're going. Put your trust in the light while there's still time. Then you'll become children of the light. After saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. This is the word of the Lord. God, when our experience tells us something about you, God, help us to bring that to you. Are you distant? Are you distracted? God, our souls need connection. God, I pray that we would get our needs met this morning that we would feel you moving toward us. We'd feel your desire to connect with us this morning. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. It is no secret if you, if you have been going to church at all since about 2020. So if you have stepped foot in a church from about March of 2020 to today, you have heard somebody say some variation of it is not good for people to be alone. All right? We learned the hard way is not good for people to be alone, circa 2020, all right? And we had warnings before 2020. Uh, a former U.S. Surgeon General called loneliness an epidemic. And again, I'm not making this up. There are doctors, and this sounds like crock pottery, but there are doctors who say that loneliness has a more adverse effect on our health then obesity and smoking, this is the part that sounds like crock pottery, smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's a lot of cigarettes. Like I had friends that smoked like a pack a day. How many cigarettes are in a pack now? 20. That's, a, that's like, well, that's actually not that much. But that's not that, you know, that's not that great, right? <laughs> we can handle that 15, right? Either way, not great to be alone, all right? Why is that? We were wired and made for connection. We were wired. We are relational beings. Someone this morning before the first service told me a story that it, it bumps up against so many of our fears. They told me the story of someone that they knew who died just a couple weeks ago. 
and no one knew. They died, and there was no funeral. They did not die the death of a salesman. They died our greatest fear. When I'm gone, is anybody going to care? Did my life matter? Did I, did, did I have any kind of impact on people? Those are fears that we have. As a pastor of church, I get to sit with people in their fears. And the fears that I hear people sharing about, especially as we start to age, the fears that we have are like, am I doing this right? Am, is what I do matter? Or like, you know, as I get older, people are, things are moving on without me. Do I matter? Those are all connection concerns. Because we were made and wired for connection. Connection is a good in and of itself. The old church theologian, Thomas Aquinas, he didn't use the word connection, but he used a synonym of connection to say this. Connection involves striving to understand the loved one from the inside. What does he mean by that? What Aquinas means by our need for connection is when, when we've connected with someone, their fears, we feel them. We feel their fears. We love them from the inside. Their desires, we feel their desires like they're our desires. Their hopes, we feel those like they're our hopes. That's connection. When Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, he's saying this, God is dying to connect with you. God wants to love you from the inside. I never heard that. It doesn't explicitly say that. Let me fast forward a little bit. Further on in the New Testament, there's a guy called Paul. Paul's kind of skeptical about this whole Jesus movement thing, so he tries to crush it. He's riding to Damascus, north, and Jesus appears to him and says this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Was Saul persecuting Jesus? No. He was persecuting the church. What's happened though? Jesus is so deeply connected to the church. A connection has been made. Their pains, our pains, are his pains. He loves from the inside. He understands. That, that really gets put into motion on Palm Sunday. He's loving us. He's seeing our fears. He's seeing our needs like they're his own. He's moving toward us in connection. Where do I get that? Uh, look with me again at verses 14 and 15. The crowd's here that Jesus is coming into the city. So what does he do? He finds a young donkey. Hear the intentionality there? Jesus sees the crowd. Then he goes and finds a donkey. Then what does he do? He rides it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He sees their fears. They are afraid. And he grabs a tool to communicate that they will understand. I'm riding in a donkey and I'm saying, don't be afraid. I see you. I'm moving toward you. Look, your king is coming riding on a donkey. Then he starts explaining what he's doing to them in, in what I think is one of the most clear and explicit expressions of why Jesus came. He talks about the seed of a, of a kernel of wheat has to die before it can bear fruit. He's explaining that to them. And then they get nervous. And then something nuts happens that we just read and we're like, oh yeah, that's a thing that happens. 
A voice from heaven says, hey, he's telling the truth. Listen to him. All right, we, we just read that and we're like, oh yeah, that's something that happened in the Bible, right? Can you imagine if, if you know, you and I got coffee, we're leaving Starbucks, and then a voice from heaven comes? Yeah, that would probably make it into your journal that day. It's pretty gnarly, right? A voice from heaven comes. Everybody's freaking out. What does Jesus say to them? He says, hey, look, uh, that voice is not coming for like my own insecurity. You're like, yeah, guys, you can trust him. Like, whether you believe me or not, I'm here to do something. That voice is actually for your benefit. See, the crowds, and rightly so, were relating to God from a place of fear. We're oppressed. This is scary. This is hard. Jesus, do you see our news feed? Jesus, do you know what's happening? A fear. When we're scared and when we're in crisis, we think the best thing someone can do is come into that crisis with us. And they're like, Jesus, we really like you. This is great. So because we like you, will you please take on Rome? And he's like, hey, I'm not here for your approval. I'm here to actually take on something bigger than Rome. And again, I think this is one of the most beautiful expressions of what Jesus says uh, in John 12, 24. I tell you the truth. In Greek, that's literally amen, amen, or amen, amen. Jesus says that several times in, in the Gospel of John. And when he says it, you definitely want to pay attention. Here's what Jesus says. Truly, I'm telling you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. What's he talking about? He's talking about self-sacrifice versus self-preservation. I'm not here to relate to you based on your fears and to get scared with you and just keep you safe. I'm here to really give you new life. Um, I love spring in Missouri. It's like the third best thing about Missouri. And have you ever taken like uh, an acorn and peeled it apart? They're like really beautiful. Like it's like, it's like man, they could just make like a table out of like this, like all these designs on these. They're beautiful. But in order for that acorn to become a tree, that beautiful design has to get destroyed. Now, we, in Jesus' analogy, are like that acorn. We're like, I don't want this to get broken up. I, you know, life is already terrifying. I've got a good thing going. Can we just keep the acorn? And Jesus is like, do you trust me enough to let this thing die? We're like, mm, is there another way? Do you have to do it that way? And Jesus even kind of names that. It's really beautiful. He says, my soul is deeply distressed. Jesus gets it. Look, uh, look with me in verse 27. My soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? He understands that inviting people into self-sacrifice is not easy. It's very difficult. That's why it's called self-sacrifice. Right? But we, we live in the world of self-preservation. If I'm vulnerable, people will destroy me. So what do I do? Self-preserve. Got to protect myself. And the narrative that we hear is, well, if we, if we really do, if we are vulnerable, if we do move toward other people, they're going to use that against us. They're going to kill us. And Jesus is saying this. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. 
Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. He's inviting us into self-sacrifice with him. Because what does Jesus understand about his death? He's saying this, when I die, it's going to produce new life. That's scary. That's hard. But I'm walking toward self-sacrifice. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. That's what we miss. We miss. We're like, God, I'm scared. Help me preserve. And God says, I see that fear. I'm here to comfort you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. And now I'm inviting you to follow me on this cruciform life. A life of self-sacrifice. Why? Because connection's on the other side. Life. Jesus making our needs his need. Him loving us from the inside. Connection. It's a, it's a terrifying thing. We would rather that not be the case, but Jesus, in case he wasn't clear, he explicitly states it again. He says this in verse 26, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. Follow you where? On this journey of self-sacrifice, to the cross, to death. Because where my servants, my servants must be where I am. Mm. Jesus, could you be at Bed Bath & Beyond? Like, I would be very cool with that. Like, I love my comfort. Self-sacrifice. Losing my life. Ugh. But the beautiful thing that Jesus is showing us is, yes, this is hard. He names it. My soul is troubled. This is not even easy, even for Jesus. But the life that was produced after that is what keeps our britches in between the ditches. What Jesus says here, its death will produce many new kernels. Spring is beautiful, but if you think about it, it's kind of morbid. A bunch of things died so we could get all this beauty. And that's where faith comes in. Like, do we trust Jesus? Like, hey, Jesus, if I follow you where you're going, are you really for me? Are you really going to take care of me? Do you really have my best interest in mind? And he's saying, I'll go first. I'm not asking you to do anything I myself haven't done. The difference between Christianity and many other religions, especially many religions of the first century, the gods demanded that we sacrifice our kids to them. But in Christianity, God sends his son. He's saying, I'll go first. Hey, self-sacrifice is hard. It's scary. You want, me to die for, to, to, you want me to die in battle defending you from Rome. You all like me. That's fantastic. Not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to kill Rome. I'm here to die for Rome. And I'm actually inviting you on the journey with me. It's like, oof. Now, once we get past that moment of decision, I'm like, okay, I'll follow Jesus on a, on a road of self-sacrifice. Here we go. We learn something. We learn that life is very short and at the same time, very long. So it's like, all right, I'm here to self-sacrifice. Woohoo! What do I need to do? I'll tell anybody anything. I'm here to die for Jesus. And it's like, yeah, now you live in the suburbs in Missouri. Ha! It's, it's easy to die once. 
Oh, but this life that Jesus is inviting into is a daily death in small ways following Jesus to the cross. It's not just this one time like, all right, I trust you, Jesus. Here we go. And I'm good. Smooth sailing forever. You learn that life is very short. I I can't believe when I look in the mirror, I'm like, who's that old guy? Oh, geez, it's me, you know? I sound more and more like my dad every day. It's, it's crazy, right? Life is very short. And life is very long at the same time. That's actually been a problem for the church in the West. Jesus calls us to die to self. We do that. What does it create? Flourishing. Hmm? Jesus tells us to, to live a life of self-sacrifice. We do that. What happens? Great things. Hmm? Are we doing this wrong? Right? Like, who doesn't want a neighbor? You can have the most secular atheist neighbor ever. I don't care who they are. They want to be neighbors with a Christian, right? Someone who has said, my identity, I follow someone who is a self-sacrificial savior. Someone who died for their enemies. So I'm going to die for my enemies. I'm just going to love my neighbors in a self-sacrificial way. I don't care who your neighbors are. They're going to want you as a neighbor. All right? I don't care what their preconceived idea of Christianity is. If you're their neighbor and you're consistently living in a self-sacrificial way, they're like, I like this neighbor. This is, they may be cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but they're a great neighbor, all right? And it creates this paradigm. We're supposed to live a life of self-sacrifice, but it's turning out okay and I'm comfortable. Am I doing it wrong? And so sometimes what you can see is people create drama following Jesus. They're like, there's an enemy out there. Oh, and like, you know, there's like pastors who their whole ministry is they just create like a new enemy every five years that's coming after you. They're here to persecute you. I'm not trying to say there aren't things that go bump in the night. There are things that go bump in the night. That's not what's happening on Palm Sunday. We're called to live a self-sacrificial life. We're, we're people who, we are disciples of him who died for his enemies. And sometimes that creates a very comfortable life. So what do you do? How do we integrate Jesus' self-sacrifice into our comfort? We're supposed to feel bad? I don't know. But here's two moments that we can do that we can be people who really are integrating this good news into our lives. We're calling them micro-connections, right? So Aquinas talked about how connections are when we understand someone from the inside, when we make their needs our needs. Okay, we're supposed to love and connect with everybody, but not the same, right? You can't connect with everybody the same. So we want to embrace micro-connections. If we really are people who are saying, God is dying to connect with us. Like literally, he entered our story. He's dying for this connection so that we're with him and he's with us and our fears become, he knows and he's one with us. What the old theologians just call union with Christ. If, if that's the most important thing to us, it's really confusing when at the water cooler, someone's like, hey, and you're like, get out of here. It's just confusing. Right? So how do we, in the small moments of life, value these micro-connections? Way number one. Way number one, that we can be people who are integrating the self-sacrifice of Jesus into our lives. Share something exciting. That does not sound spiritual. Dr. Todd Hall at the Rosemead School of Psychology uh, says this, When others hold back from revealing things that matter to them and share only superficial information, we do not feel close to that person. You're like, thanks? Okay, here's what he's saying. If you don't move past news, sports, weather, 
you're not really connecting. And when our lives are made up of moments where there's an opportunity to connect, where someone may be moving toward us and we go back to safety, it's confusing when we then try to say, hey, the most important thing is that God is, deny- is dying to connect with you. It's just confusing. Well, your God may be dying to connect with me, but you sure are, it's hard to get eye contact with you. In those micro moments, those moments of micro connection, we can integrate the self-sacrifice of Jesus into moments that may feel like they don't matter. Right? Like, does this even matter? Or we can experience new life in these small moments, connecting with people. Like, whoa, that felt good. I like that. And it's, it's, it's again, it's a breadcrumb trying to draw them back to a Savior who's dying to connect with them. Because the alternative is we just keep shutting down connection. That's not an integrated life. That's not who we are. We're people who God died to connect with. And so we can, in these small moments, experience micro-connection. We can just sharing something exciting. Now, that's going to look different when you're sharing that with, like, a romantic partner and a coworker. okay? I'm not saying just be, like, crazy vulnerable with everybody you meet, all right? There's wisdom. There's wisdom to connection of, okay, what's my role in this relationship? Okay, I'm their boss, yeah, I'm not going to tell them all my deepest fears about like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to make payroll. That's not super helpful, okay? But what's appropriate to the relationship that I can share with this person that actually is a real connection? Just because you don't go to 11 doesn't mean you're not in the race, all right? We can still have these micro-connections that ultimately, look, people don't come to us in moments of crisis because the moments leading up to that crisis, we were distant and cold, People don't go, man, you were that coworker who was always on their phone whenever I wanted to talk to you. Hey, I just, my wife just kicked me out. Can I come stay with you? No, but they're like, hey, there's something different about this. They care about me. They seem to get excited about what I get excited about. I've never met anybody who's excited about Red Bull surfing videos. This person's excited. I don't think they're really excited about it, but they like that I'm excited about it. This is fantastic. And people keep moving toward. Here's a wild thing. I don't make the rules. People move toward where they're loved. People move toward where they're loved. And if we're people who can just grab hold of these micro-connections, we're integrating the gospel into our lives. The second thing we can do to create micro-connections, share appreciation. Share appreciation. Here's Dr. Todd Hall again. The person who feels shame believes that others actively reject a desire for connection. All you have to do is YouTube shame. And man, we've been talking about this since the early 2000s, and nobody's solved the problem of shame yet. Brene Brown got real close. All right? But we just haven't, we just keep coming back to this shame, 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 shame thing. What is shame fundamentally? Nobody wants to connect with me. God doesn't want to connect with me. Why? I'm a fill in the blank. When we can appreciate somebody, that's kryptonite to their shame. That's kryptonite to their shame. And when we can share specificity about the things that we appreciate, whew, man, that goes a long way. I was recently um, in the car with an elder of this church. We had just gotten back from our, we're driving back from our elders retreat. 
and I'm in the car, and an elder is driving. Which one? None of your business. Well, yeah, you, you got to find out. You'll, you'll figure it out. So we're driving, and this elder gets pulled over. That's why I didn't tell you who. All right? Now, I'm in the car, so I'm guilty of this too. But that elder gets pulled over, and at first, I don't think, did you think, I didn't think the cop was like super nice at first. They're kind of like all business, right? Would you say that, Luke? Are you tracking it? Luke, not sure if he agrees. I didn't feel like the, the officer was like crazy nice at first. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of a tense moment, right? Like, oh man, how much is this going to cost? Blah, 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 blah. And you know what happened though in the car? And again, I'm guilty of this. You know what we all did? We were all like, man, this one time I got pulled over. Oh yeah, well, I got pulled over. Oh yeah, well, I've been pulled over 10 times. And, it, and it's like, that's not care for somebody, right? Right, where someone's like vulnerable and it's like, oh, it's a moment. It's like, oh, you know what happened to me? This thing that's happening to you. But let me tell you about how it happened to me, right? That doesn't create connection. It actually, it actually encourages our shame. Oh, man. Yeah, this is really weird and it happened to me. I'm going to bury. Those micro moments, again, I don't think, I mean, I, I talked about it with a person. I don't think we, we're going to shipwreck anybody's faith. I'm not trying to make you paranoid about everything you say. But those micro moments can be captured and real connection can take place there. And any moment can be a profound moment when we experience the God who's dying to connect with us. Wow, this is an awkward moment. How are you feeling? Communicates a lot more than, I got ticket once. There are two people groups that I'm convinced are especially vulnerable when it comes to the need for connection. Two different groups of folks, retirees and immigrants. I think both of those people feel the weight more of missed connections than the rest of us. Immigrants, let's just say, they take on the hero's journey. They leave home in search of something better. And they come somewhere where even the smallest things that have been taken for granted are disorienting. And the faces that they see are not, ah, oh, welcome, let's connect. It's, or it's, oh, a thousand cuts is what kills a man. And just that experience where you've, you've, you've stepped into something very vulnerable, you're in a new place, you've taken a risk, and the connection that you don't know you need, you don't get vulnerable. Retirees, I get to sit with a lot of people as a pastor. Some of the fears that I hear, and they're my own fears, and I feel them creeping in, is, man, as I start to get older, and I start to kind of shift into a lower gear, kind of slowing down, seems like life is going on without me, and it's not about me, and that's scary, and that's hard. That's a connection issue. Immigration is a connection issue. These two stories about the need for connection met beautifully once in Central Park. There was an, uh, a retiree sitting on a bench. We'll call him Mr. Mergler. Mr. Mergler uh, would come to the park and he would just watch the birds, enjoy nature. And one day there was a young immigrant family, a father and a daughter. Uh, they had been in the United States for a little bit 
They were just starting to get uh, some traction, just starting to get uh, to the place where they're starting to be able to meet their needs, but it was still fragile. The father and Mr. Mergler started connecting, and they were talking, and the daughter got called over. The father introduced his daughter to Mr. Mergler. This is my daughter. She's very musical. You never believe this. We just met this older man in the park, and he uh, teaches piano lessons. Isn't that amazing? How in the world can you afford rent in New York doing piano lessons? That's crazy. And so they make a connection. Mr. Mergler says, oh, you like music to the daughter. Tell, tell me about that. Well, my mom plays piano, but, you know, she used to play at our church, and she hasn't played in a long time, so she's kind of taught me everything she knows, but I really like music. Mr. Mergler says, well, sing me your favorite song. And so she starts singing some old, like, chorus, and he closes his eyes, and you could just see that just he's feeling the music. He said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my address. This is where my studio is. Uh, why don't you meet me there? Here's, here's what you can do for payment. Uh, just love music. All right? Just love music. That was a tremendous blessing. This family was able to get by, but the luxury of piano lessons would have crushed them. So she comes to his studio for the first time. And as she comes, she opens the, the door to the studio, and she sees a piano. There's, there's music sheets everywhere, and there's a, there's a bust of a grumpy man on the top of the piano. And, you know, she's a young child of immigrants. She's like, who's that? Who is that old grumpy guy? Oh, Mr. Merkler says, uh, that's Beethoven. As you get better at piano, you'll notice he becomes less grumpy. Okay, cool. So she starts practicing, and it was overwhelming at first. Like, well, how do these dots on pages tell me where to put my hands? But Mr. Merkler was patient. They worked together. He worked with her. They started developing a connection, a friendship. A few months go by. The little girl is at her home. She comes down for breakfast, and her parents are sad. There's tears in their eyes. Uh, honey, Mr. Mergler's sick, and he's not going to be able to teach you piano anymore. But he gave you this. They slide her a note. The note says... I'm sorry, I'm sick, I can't teach you piano anymore. But you were my best student. And so I've arranged for you to get lessons. Now, what she didn't know about Mr. Mergler was he didn't just pay rent uh, teaching piano lessons in New York City. I can see by the look on your faces, not many of you have lived in New York City because that would be overwhelming. He was a professor at Juilliard. And he's like, I have a friend. He's got you. Two vulnerable people make a connection, and it changes the course of their lives. He's not some old guy just skating off into irrelevance. He still has something to offer. She's not someone who left home and will never find a home because no one's safe. God is not distant. He's not distracted. And to use the 2001 New Webster's definition of disinterested, which is not correct. He's also not disinterested. God is dying to connect. And if piano lessons can create that kind of a moment, what about the crushing of the most beautiful seed? The seed 
that the Bible promised in Genesis 3. The seed that we waited for throughout Abraham, David, it's here and it got crushed. And it created a beautiful spring, a garden of new lives. Oh, self-preservation won't get you there. This new life that Jesus created, we call it the church. And if you're not a part of a church, you might want to think about joining this one. It's pretty good. I like it. I'm in. This is a place where people have learned that when we give things to Jesus, it's a death. But he takes them and he makes them more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. And that's Palm Sunday. And this week is holy. We're headed to Friday where he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down. Why? Why? Because he's dying to connect. Jesus, God, I pray that we wouldn't stay on the fringes, that we'd move to where you are. God, I pray that the new life that you promised would just be flowing through this place. God, that men and women and children today would meet you and experience that connection, that joy. God, none of us have to die alone. We're not alone. You love us from the inside. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.